0: Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. We've been looking at the letter to the Hebrews for some time now, seeing God's word to those who are embattered, weakened, frustrated, and ready to give up. Amen. And the word of God to these people is to look to the Savior that is greater than all. So This morning I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. As any good carpenter can tell you, the rule of thumb is, don't lose your thumb. No, the rule of thumb is measure twice, cut once. Or, if you're an electrician and you're wanting to test some exposed wires, do you not first make sure that there's no current running to those wires? Or, a plumber wishing to remove a pipe will first make sure that the valve is shut off and there's no water flowing through, right? Before we take any action, we want to make sure that action is justified. We want to make sure we have good reason to do the thing that we're about to do and that we're not acting in haste or in foolishness or in vanity. And Likewise, for the Christian, a life of faith is not blindly and confidently going forward, not sure if we're doing the right thing. That's not what faith is at all. No, faith is trusting something enough to risk everything for it, but trusting something that has been promised to you. Something that gives you reason, that gives you justification to do what it is that you're about to do. And that is what the author of Hebrews is laying out for us. The past five chapters of Hebrews have been a parenthesis. Laying out, going into detail on the justification for what we are supposed to do. It actually goes all the way back. The parenthesis begins right after chapter 4. If we're to look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He mentions several of the same things we saw in our passage today. Holding fast to our confession, drawing near to God with confidence, and doing all of this because we have a great high priest who has finished the work that needs to be done. But then he pauses and says, wait a minute, do you understand that this is real? Do you understand that I've done the fact checking that that Jesus is the high priest? He has done everything that needs to be done. And he is still here fighting on our behalf, working for us, representing us, praying for us. And so he goes from chapter five all the way through the beginning of chapter 10, where we are today. And has, has laid out the case that Jesus is indeed the high priest. He looked at the priestly system. He looked at the priesthood of Melchizedek. He looked at the sacrificial system. He looked at the need for blood. He looked at the architecture of the temple and the furniture of the tabernacle. And looked at all of these things to show that Jesus fulfilled it. He did it. It's done. You are safely brought into the presence of God with your sins forgiven. And now having thoroughly looked at that, he closes the parenthesis. And comes back to this idea and says, Now, now, since we've got that good of a priest, draw near to God. Hold fast with confidence. If, if all this is not true, then we have no reason to live the way that God called us to live. Paul says, if this isn't true, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We're pathetic. We would have no foundation for living the Christian life. No reason to do so. No hope that it's worth the sacrifice, the effort, the struggle. But if it's true, as we believe it is, then we can boldly and with confidence proceed, knowing that everything checks out and gives us good reason, justification, to take the next steps that we're called to take because the work of Jesus gives us confidence to live faithfully until his return. And then the author lays out three lettuces, I call them, let us, three let us as. Let us do three things in response to the confidence that Jesus gives us. One is let us confidently draw near. We have the confidence to draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because of what Jesus has done, we can draw near to God, which might not sound that special to ears that have grown up with this. And I know I speak to many who have been raised in the church, raised in the Christian faith, and we're used to this idea that we can draw near to God, that He's our loving Heavenly Father, that we have a partnership with Him, we have an access to Him through Jesus Christ, just as I am, without one plea, O oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. But let's think about that, that opportunity, the, the drawing near to God. Think about it from the lens of all of Bible history. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. After they sin, in Genesis 3, look what happens. After Adam and Eve have sinned, it says, They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself adam and eve we also made to glorify god and to enjoy him forever but sin disrupts that it disrupts glorifying god yes of course But it also disrupts our enjoyment of God. Sin comes in and makes people who should have run to the Lord God in the garden. It instead makes them hide because they're afraid of the Lord. And they're ashamed of how they are before Him. Sin introduces fear, shame, guilt, doubt. And turns what should be a life-giving relationship with our Heavenly Father into instead a fearful relationship, an emptiness, a void, So much so that later on when Isaiah the prophet witnesses a vision of the Lord in his temple, in Isaiah 6 he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing the glory of the Lord instead of rejoicing as the, as the cherubim and seraphim did, as they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah could not rejoice. He instead lamented in the presence of God because he was terrified and he was ashamed. Like Adam, he was afraid and he was ashamed. Later on, Peter When Jesus calls Peter and says, hey, throw your nets out on the other side of the boat. And Peter, whatever, whatever, throws them down, brings in a huge catch of fish, realizes he's not looking at any ordinary person, but he's seeing the Lord God in front of him. He comes before Jesus. Not Jesus shining in glory in the temple, but Jesus with calloused and dirty hands and dirty feet and human flesh. And look how Peter reacts. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Instead of embracing this one who had performed a miracle for him, he felt intimately, deeply, really personally the shame and the fear of being in the presence of God. And he said, Please go away from me. I can't handle being around you. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, like Isaiah in the temple, Peter, in the presence of Jesus, is afraid and he's ashamed. We, too, feel the same way when we are faced with the presence of God. We are stumbled and caught up by our shame and by our fear. Our heart's desire, our created instinct is to draw near to God. Because we read promises like the psalmist in Psalm 16. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We know that in the presence of God there should be joy, there should be pleasure forevermore. But sin breaks that connection. It cuts us off from the pleasures that are promised. We want to draw near, but we can't and we shouldn't. Sin blocks the way until Jesus. So the author of Hebrews in verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places, to approach the presence of the Lord that should make us fearful and shameful. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Our sin makes us unable to be close to God because of fear and shame. But Jesus removes our sin so that we can be close to God again. Jesus, in dying for our sin, removes the source of our fear, our guilt, our shame, our doubt, and everything that would make us unable or unwilling to draw near to God. So verse 22, the author says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As we sang in the first psalm this morning, come and welcome. The second verse, sprinkled now with blood the throne, why beneath thy burdens grow? On my pierced body lay, Justice owns the ransom paid. The price that was necessary to bring us back to God has been paid as evidenced by the blood that is sprinkled before the throne of God. His death counts as ours so we can draw near. The uncleanness that Adam and Eve and Isaiah and Peter and everyone who has tried to draw near to God, that uncleanness that they lament is now removed not by rituals but by the washings of the work of jesus which is why verse 22 says sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water it's talking about the the things that under the old covenant had to happen before the priest could draw near blood had to be shed in a sacrifice and the priest had to wash himself with water and the author of hebrew says that's happened to you now through jesus you have received a sacrifice and been made clean you may now draw near It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. It's a beautiful story. Most of you know it. Jesus tells this parable, a story about a man who has two sons and the youngest one says, Father, just give me my inheritance now as if you were dead because I don't want you. I want your money. And he takes that money the father graciously gives him and he goes off to a far country and he lives lavishly, surrounds himself with people who are happy to mooch off of his his inheritance. And eventually the money's gone and with the money go the friends until all that's left is this poor man living among the the pigs, wishing he could even eat what the pigs were eating. He's, He's shamed. He's desperate. He's destitute. And he suddenly realizes, man, I got no chance of going back to my father because I have ruined that. I've burned that bridge. I will not be welcomed. But he's got servants and I could see if he'll let me just be a servant because I don't even get scraps of food here. But my father's servants, they at least get three square meals a day. And so what he does, we see in Luke 15, he starts reciting in his mind a script that he's going to follow. He starts working out the words he's going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be one of your servants. That's what he's going to do. He's going to go home. He's like, I have no right to be your son anymore. I'm not even asking for that. I just want to, just let me go in the corner and be a servant and eat some scraps of food. And so as he's trudging home and his father runs out to greet him in an expression of grace and love and welcomes him. And the young man, not even looking up at his father, begins to go through that script that he'd been practicing. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can get to the next line, let me be as one of your servants. The father interrupts him, cuts him off, and welcomes him. Wraps him in a garment, gives him a ring, calls for a feast, calls for celebration. That's why we draw near. Because we don't come home as shameful failures begging for a spot in the corner, though that's how we might see ourselves. We approach God richly and joyfully welcomed as daughters and sons because He has made a way through Christ. And so we draw near in full assurance, in confidence. How do we draw near, though? That's the question. What does it look like to draw near to God? Well, there's different ways we draw near. One way is through prayer. If prayer for you is about picking out the right language, the right words to express the right doctrines so that you can sound right enough for God to listen and maybe pay attention to what you're saying, then you are praying wrongly. Prayer is not about formal structure that can persuade God to listen to you. Drawing near to God means opening up your heart and being honest. Read the Psalms to learn how to pray. Note how the Psalmists get angry. They get frustrated. They are upset. They are afraid. And they open it up to God and draw near to Him, knowing that they will not be rejected for feeling as they do. They will not be rejected for feeling the wrong things. Their God longs to hear and answer prayer. Draw near to God in prayer. Draw near to God in worship. Worship is not a time where we try to to look our best and act our best and show our unique, godly, super spiritual behavior so that we can impress God and everybody will stand around and think, wow, what good holy people we are. That's not worship. Worship is coming to God. Whether you are rejoicing or mourning, whether you are confident or doubting, you come before God as you are. You gather with His people and you talk about how amazing He is and let Him meet you there and meet your needs. We draw near to God in our obedience. Jesus said, whoever loves me will keep my commands and the one who does that, I will dwell with him and make my home with him and my Father will dwell with him and make his home with him. When we obey God, He draws nearer to us and we are drawing nearer to Him. We draw near to God by not settling for lesser joys. There's a little line in Psalm 4 that I love. The psalmist is looking at those around him who are celebrating the abundance of their crops. They have so much wheat that they've got grain to spare. They've had so much growing on their vines that they they've got wine in abundance, and they think they have everything it takes to be happy and satisfied in the world. And the psalmist looks at them and says, "You've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. Everything that the world thinks makes them happy. I'm not going to settle for that. Because you have put more joy in my heart than they have when they've got everything the world tells them they could want. We draw near to God by not pursuing lesser happiness. But instead, by saying, what you give me, what you offer me, is pleasures forevermore. It is truer joy than the world can offer. So because of what Jesus has done to make a way back to the Father, we have the confidence to draw near. But remember, the original readers of this letter had drawn near to God already. They were drawing near to God, but they were struggling. What they were struggling to do was to hang on. And so the author of Hebrews encourages them with the promise that because of the work of Jesus, not only are we given confidence to draw near, but we're also given confidence to hold on tight, to hold fast. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He says we hold fast to the confession of our hope. Which means not that we're holding fast to sterile doctrines, lines of truth, doctrinal truth. Those things can help us, but they are not what we hold fast to. Like we would say we hold fast to historical facts or mathematical properties. No, the confession that we hold fast to is the confession of our hope. What it is we're relying on. What we're trusting in. What we build our future on. And the author of Hebrews says what we hold fast to in this case is our hope. Which in normal human language would not be that impressive. Because in normal human language, hope refers to something we wish was true. Something we would like to be the case. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not like that. When the Bible uses that word hope, it's it's talking about what God has said will be true. And hope is our looking forward to it. Just as faith is not blind trust, faith is looking back at what God has said and living because of it. Hope is looking ahead to what God has promised and living our lives according to those promises. So for a Christian, the hope is not a wish. It is a certainty. And we have that certainty. We have confidence because of what Christ has already done. He has opened the way for us to be near to God. He is our great high priest that continues to pray for and minister for and suffer for us. So the reason we can be confident is and hold fast is because our confidence is not in us. We don't sing, great is my faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning in me. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Because there certainly is a shadow of turning in me. There is nothing great about my faithfulness. No, our confidence is. A reason to hold fast according to verse 23 is that he who promised is faithful. Not she who receives the promise, but he who made the promise is faithful. Your hope isn't grounded in your faithfulness, but rather in the faithfulness of the one who promised you. First Peter 5, the apostle says that the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, God will restore you. God will confirm you. God will strengthen you. And God will establish you. So believer, hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering because God is holding on to you. God establishes you. God strengthens you. Don't let go of our hope because God doesn't let go of us. But what does holding fast to our hope look like? I would suggest it it mainly means persevering. Not giving up, not wavering, as the author of Hebrews says. Staying on the path before you without turning to the right or to the left. It reminds me of a time when I was... um, I used to have to travel a lot for my ministry when I was raising funds uh, for the mission work that I was in, and some of the people in the area where I uh, had a lot of connections, they lived in places that were not on normal roads. Yeah, you know, we're, we're not we're not talking about urban areas here. We're talking about in the hills and the mountains, and uh, GPS just wasn't there yet. And so I, I would I would pull up on the GPS this address, and I would tell somebody that would be you know heading to their house to visit and I'd say well you know gps is telling me how to get there and he said oh no 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 no, turn it off i'm going to tell you how to get there i'm going to tell you the roads to take i'm going to tell you where to turn you to do exactly what i tell you or you're not going to get to my house and so i write down the directions and i begin to follow them but just in case i've got the gps on because if you've ever driven a long trip with me you know i don't know where i'm going i get lost after two blocks and uh and as I'm following the directions that are written out clearly for me, the GPS is panicking. You know, When possible, make a U-turn. When possible, make a U-turn. Turn right now. Recalculating. And I, had, I, I did not waver, and eventually I had to turn off the GPS because it, it was having a panic attack. Uh, I did not waver from the directions that were given because I trusted the word of the one who told me how to get there. That's what holding fast to the confession of your hope means. It means that you have the direction before you. You have the instructions telling you what to do. Don't waver. No matter what anyone else tells you to do, don't waver. That means that you can give. Looking at your budget, you can give knowing that God will provide. Looking at people around you who are unlovable and difficult, you can love them knowing that you don't need their approval or their love in return because you are loved by your heavenly Father and by the people of God. You can, in fact, love and do good to your enemy, knowing that God will be the one to take care of justice. You can resist evil and temptation, knowing that it will not have the final victory and whatever God sends your way to test you is not powerful enough to overcome you. You can endure scorn and opposition and insult knowing that your reward awaits you and it does not belong to the kingdoms and kingmakers of this world. That is how you hold fast, Christian. You don't waver from what God has called you to, no matter what the world tells you and tries to tell you to turn to the side. Hold fast to the confession of your hope because he who promised is faithful there's one more let us in here let us draw near let us hold fast but lastly in verse 24 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works let me ask you when you are going somewhere and you are not sure where you are going or how to get there are you very eager to invite other people to follow you no some of you are because you're like if I'm going to be wrong I want us all to be wrong (laughs) makes me feel better I know people like that, but most of us, if we don't know where we're going, we don't invite people to follow us. We say, hey, can anybody else show me how to get there? Or if we don't know what we're doing, we don't invite somebody else to mimic us or follow the way we're doing it, right? If you doubt that something's going to work, you're not going to recommend it to somebody. If you think a movie is going to be bad, you don't recommend it to other people. If you think a recipe is going to be terrible, you don't want everybody to taste it. Some of you do, I get that, for the most part. We don't want to invite people into our uncertainty. We invite people into things we are confident in. We invite people to follow us in things that we're sure of and imitate us in things we know work. And so the last set of encouragements here are likewise based on the confidence that we have because of Christ. We have the confidence to stir up others. To keep them going on the path that's set before all of us. Confidence that what God has called us to is not iffy. It's not risky. It's not a waste of time. As 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If it was going to be a waste of time, if there was a chance that all this is just futile, We would not be motivated to encourage others in it. You'd be like, you know what? Maybe go find a better way. But because Jesus has opened the way for us to be united to God, because He has risen from the dead and shown His power over all things, because He continues to live and serve as our representative, we have confidence that what we do to follow Him is worth it. So much confidence that we... Urge others in that same path. Come with me. This is the way. This works. This is the right path. When we have that level of confidence, we freely invite people to share our enjoyment. Hey, I saw this movie. It was great. You should see it too. I went to this restaurant. It was awesome. You should check it out. Confidence breeds encouragement. We bring other people in. Or as the author of Hebrews says, we stir others up. That word stir up is an interesting word. It means to agitate, to provoke, to poke and to prod, to get something going. It's not just the happy, smiley, gentle cheering on. Hey, you're doing great, buddy. It's the coach on the sidelines screaming, come on! That's what it means to stir, stir someone up, get them going, motivate them, inspire them. I get to see this every week when my kids are at, at Taekwondo um, because I have two kids. One goes Monday, Wednesday, one goes Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday. So I'm there four days a week. Um, and one thing they do at least every week is they get all these kids into teams of like three, four, or five, and they run relay races against each other you know you've got to run out and you've got to like do do a certain tumble roll to the wall and then run back or you've got to do a crab walk out and come back and but what they always do is they and and they'll stop the kids and make them go back to the start if they're not doing it they say before you do it learn the names of everyone in your group because when they're out there running you have to be cheering them on screaming their name as loud as you can it's not loud enough get louder. Because we want to inspire each other. We want to encourage each other. We want to cheer each other on. That's what this verse is saying. Stir one another up towards what? Towards love. Towards good works. Because the thing is, brothers and sisters, we need each other. The Christian life was not made to be walked solitary. It was not made to be lived alone. You were saved into a community of People. And look at how we go about stirring one another up in verses 24 and 25. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Here's how we do it. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, don't neglect meeting together. Okay, that seems clear. But what's really fascinating about this verse is look what he contrasts that with. Look what the contrast is. You would think that the opposite of neglecting to meet together is meet together, right? That seems to make sense grammatically. The opposite of not doing something is doing something. But that's not what he does. That's not the contrast here. Neglecting to meet together is contrasted with encouraging others. And so the command is not just show up. The command is to get connected. The command is to be involved in people's lives in a way that strengthens them, in a way that challenges them, in a way that provokes them. So we're not just talking about showing up on Sunday morning and sitting here with a bunch of people with a high five, a smile, and a kind word. We're talking about living out the gospel together as God's people. More than just your presence on Sunday morning. It's your presence in each other's lives your absence doesn't just affect you. Your absence impoverishes us. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle says that to each each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each of you is equipped by the Spirit of God for a reason, for a purpose. And so your presence here, your purpose is to build up your brothers and sisters, not just on Sunday morning, not just in the church generally, but daily, regularly. And so you are called, your presence here is not as a spectator, though it may feel that way sometimes as you're sitting here looking at one person up front. But you are not in the church a spectator. You have a role, a calling, a purpose. It is not only my job to build up the body of Christ. It is everyone's job to build up the church. One of my favorite passages on this topic is Ephesians 4. Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we, the church, are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, the whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Don't neglect meeting together, but because you are to be here encouraging your brothers and sisters, not just Sunday morning, but all throughout the week, in a way that builds up the body of Christ. You have a role in that. You have a purpose in that. And we need each other, not only because we build each other up, but because the road is long. And it's wearying. And no matter how confident we are that we're on the right path, no matter how, how much we are striving to hold fast and draw near, the world, our flesh, and Satan himself are working against us in that. And so verse 25, the author says, Don't neglect to meet together. Encourage one another all the more. Encourage each other all the more as you see the day drawing near somebody joining us or just the wind welcome to come on in i can start over (laughs) encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near the day capital d day the day is that day when as we're going to sing in a few minutes when the faith shall be sight when hope becomes reality And as that day draws nearer and nearer, it's like a runner at the end of a long race. Two things are happening. Number one, you're getting weary. You're getting tired. It's getting difficult because persevering in the faith is not ever easy. But you're also closer and closer to your rest and your reward than you ever were before. And so we need to be like runners on the sideline, though we're all running together. I'm not sure how that works. We're like on the sideline cheering one another on. You're almost there. Keep going. Do it. Come on. Don't give up. Cheering one another on, encouraging one another towards love and towards good works because the day is approaching and we don't want to give up now. I just want to close with with one story here about camping, which is something I'm very bad at and have no love for. And if it was up to me, i would not survive more than a few hours in my backyard but i had a roommate and a dear friend um, named kevin i li- we lived together one year we shared a room for one year and that's all i could handle because kevin from vermont thought that february in the blue ridge mountains is a time when you sleep with the windows open okay this is kevin love he's now na- he's made for the mountains And he finally, after years of friendship, persuaded me to go on a two-day hike with him, which I was dreading the thought of and very nervous about because I just did not know how I would be able to do this. I'm going to sprain my ankle on the first rock that I step on. I'm not going to pack the right stuff. I'm not going to be able to sleep. I'm going to get lost. This is going to go wrong. That's going to go wrong. I have no confidence in myself, but I didn't need to have confidence in myself because I was with Kevin. And Kevin is more natural in the outdoors than in the indoors. And Kevin had gone out on the path already. And he scoped out where we're going to stay. And where the path needs to lead. And where it's dangerous and where it's safe. Kevin packed everything we needed and he carried 75% of it. Although by looking at me, you would have thought I had 75% of it. And as I started to realize that Kevin had gone on before me and had done everything that needed to be done for me, I started to step a little more confidently because I knew the path was gonna be okay. And I slept a lot more peacefully because I knew we were in the right spot. And I knew that my pace was gonna be okay. And I knew when to stop for breaks because I just did what Kevin told me to do. And Kevin knew what he was doing. I even began almost to enjoy myself on those two days because my confidence wasn't in me. My confidence was in the one who had gone ahead and made everything ready for me, and I just had to stay with him. Christian, there is a difference between being confident in yourself and being confident in Christ. And if you hear me this morning saying, you have to draw near to Jesus, and you have to hold fast to your hope, and you have to stir one another up towards love and good works, and you're thinking, I don't have it in me to do that, or you're thinking, that's right, I gotta dig deep and I gotta work hard and I gotta do it, do it, do it. You're putting confidence in yourself and that's the wrong place to put it. You have to look instead to what began this whole passage before telling us to do these things. The author of Hebrews went to great lengths to make sure we knew and understood that the only reason we can do them is because of what Christ has already done. Because of what he has done, you are able to do. Able to do what he calls you to do. To draw near to God in full assurance. To hold fast to your hope without wavering and to stir one another up into living confidently with you until the faith shall be sight. And so as we're about to sing in just a minute here, because of what Christ has done, it is well. Not because I'm good enough, not because I hold on tight enough, not because I'm worthy enough, but because Christ has done what needed to be done, it is well. Let us thank Him for that and live confidently because of that. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You for the reason You have given us to live confidently. Reasons we cannot find in ourselves, but which are given to us fully and abundantly in the work of Jesus Christ, who has, by the blood of His sacrifice, made straight the way into the heavenly places for us, and who by His presence before Your throne makes intercession for us, We have all that we need to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir others up to live confidently before you. We thank you for these things in the name of our Savior who has finished the work for us. Amen.